the prayer for illumination. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Old Testament reading is taken from Psalm 14 on page 549 in the Church Bible. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's New Testament reading is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, which in your pew Bibles can be found on page 1130. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could, ju- how could God judge the world? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory... Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This too is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Philip Lassiter. I work at the University of Zurich's theological faculty in the field of Hebrew Bible and ancient Judaism. My family and I have attended IPC for about six years now, and I'm glad for the chance to be here with you this morning. We'll be focusing on Psalm 14 predominantly, which was today's Old Testament reading. I'll be reading from my own translation of the text, though I invite you to follow along in your pew Bible on page 549. For reasons that I hope will become clear, I've entitled the sermon, A Goodness Not Our Own. Let's now read one more time through the text of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, not God. They are corrupt and abominable indeed. There is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven upon human beings to see whether anyone is wise, whether anyone seeks God. Everyone turns away together. They are corrupt. No one does good, not even one. Do they not understand? All those who practice deception, those who consume my people, they consume bread. They do not call upon Yahweh. They will fear intensely, for God is with the righteous generation. You have shamed the counsel of the poor, since Yahweh is his refuge. Who will bring Israel's salvation from Zion? When Yahweh restores his people's fortune, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Who is this fool in Psalm 14? And what does the fool deny? Typically, when I hear any reference to this psalm, or its literary twin, Psalm 53, only the fool's comment in verse 1 is cited, based on a rather well-known English translation that we heard this morning that reads, Fools say in their hearts there is no God. A common response among Christian readers of this psalm may be to see themselves as exempt from its focus. Assuming that the fool is an atheist, they may quickly conclude that since they are not atheists, they, of course, don't qualify as this fool. From this angle, a Christian reader might think, this applies to somebody other than me. There might even be a self-congratulatory feeling where Christians are relieved that they are not this fool. Or so the reasoning goes. However, the psalm is more challenging than that. Atheism is probably not the best way to describe this fool or the nature of his denial in Psalm 14. Using four words, the English translation, there is no God, is merely one option for translating a Hebrew statement of only two words. And this translation is probably not the best option. 
No less than four translations of the fool's denial in this text are possible. There are more, but we will discuss only four in what I think is probably more likely. First, we have the most familiar rendering, which reads, there is no God. A second option would be to render it as, there are no gods, plural. These first two translations suggest some claim about whether gods or God is real. But a different translation is just as grammatically accurate, conveying not a claim about God's reality at all, but instead an attitude of mockery, annoyance, or a common outgrowth of these two things, indifference. Placing an impatient sigh or an eye roll before it, I think, helps communicate the idea. In this way, a third option for translating the fool's denial would be, ugh, not God's. Or, more likely, a fourth option is, ugh, not God. Even though these options could, in theory, include something that we might identify as atheism, that's not the main idea. Self-proclaimed Christians can qualify. This fool expresses an outlook that, in practice, God is not a serious concern. Either because the fool thinks that God isn't attentive, that God is inconsequential, or as we might say, not relevant, or that God is negligible because God represents a hindrance for the fool's desires. As we'll see in a minute, the fool in the Psalms is someone largely uninterested in how his desires or actions correspond to the character of God. For these reasons, Psalm 14 is a text that we need to hear and learn from. Its portrait of the fool speaks to what may be our default mode of operating much of the time. Even if we don't think, oh, not God, we may well think in terms of, oh, yeah, right, God, that stuff. These statements are more closely related than they might appear at first glance. Where we are in the 21st century, our highly individual, consumerist approach to life in all its dimensions tends to prioritize and prize the idea of people acting for their own sake, people who first and foremost follow their own desires, which in many ways are deemed beyond question. We tend to define freedom itself in terms of pursuing our own individual aims and desires without hindrance and affirming our own capacity for doing so. This notion of freedom is at the center of how modern Western states operate. As long as we don't hinder or harm other people in their pursuit of what they want, then we expect no hindrance in pursuing our desires where they lead us. Psalm 14 casts this all in a different light. This psalm challenges us to reflect on the ground of our desires and their strained relationship to goodness and wisdom. The figure of the fool might be uncomfortably close to who we are. Psalm 14 identifies a problem about human beings, pressing us to look beyond ourselves, beyond our desires, and beyond our capacities for a solution. We might find that in surprising ways, this rather negative psalm highlights our dependence on the transformative role of grace and on a goodness that is not our own. 
A helpful way to understand the fool's denial in verse 1 is to recognize that the book of Psalms as we have it is just that. It's an intentionally crafted book with multiple themes and characters that appear throughout. That's not how we often read it. We often think in terms of this individual psalm here and individual psalm there. But it's an intentionally crafted book. And among its characters is the fool, who appears five times in the book. So we should clarify what kind of person this fool is in the book of Psalms. He's called a naval in Hebrew. The word naval doesn't mean fool in the sense of a stupid person. Elsewhere, for what it's worth, the Bible does indeed talk about fools in the sense of stupid people. But that's a different term from what our text uses. In the Psalms, the figure of the naval is a scoffer. Somebody who winces at the thought of honoring God in practice and whose actions reflect this mentality. Apparently, to be a naval depends on assuming that we can bracket God or select the domains of life to which God applies. So possibly on Sunday morning would be one example. At least implicitly, this involves identifying areas where God doesn't apply, especially in our prized private domain. The fact that this naval scoffs not God in his heart means that at least here he's thinking the denial, not necessarily making it public at all. Yet he's no less of a naval for doing so. The naval could be somebody who suggests that those who would submit to God are wasting their time, time that would really be better spent if used to pursue one's own desires. The naval is somebody who brings nothing of himself, who offers nothing of himself in response to God. The naval is somebody who may well be aware of God, but who spurns God, somebody for whom God is an inconvenience to be ignored for the sake of individual choice. So the fool says in his heart, Ah, oh, not God. As the critical description of the fool in Psalm 14 communicates, a prerequisite for being foolish in this sense is to content oneself with not really seeking God. That's in verse 2. Here, seeking involves, we could say, a theocentric desire. A desire to be shaped in ways not predetermined by what we want, but by who God is. In these ways, we can summarize how the book of Psalms identifies what the fool is. Again, the fool, at least the naval, is not a stupid person, but a scoffer or somebody who avoids assessing their actions and their desires in view of God. Having considered what the fool is, we should ask, who is this fool? Can we really speak in terms of an individual? That becomes difficult before we even finish the first verse. Even though verse 1 begins by speaking in terms of a single fool, at least in a number of translations, it switches seamlessly to they. Quote, they are corrupt and they are abominable indeed. There is no one who does good. But who exactly are they? Verse 2 elaborates. Without any break between mentioning the fool and an unspecific they, the psalmist broadens our focus to human beings. Given the way that Psalm 14 is often taken to apply to, one might say, people other than me, this might be a bit surprising. 
The scene in verse 2 depicts Yahweh examining not just some people, but humankind, in order to see, quote, whether anyone is wise, whether anyone seeks God. So we've gone from the fool to the question of whether anyone among humankind is wise. The answer in verse 3 seems to be no. Instead, depicting people as more of a disoriented, corrupt herd. Quote, everyone turns away together. They are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In other words, this psalmist subtly connects the dots between the fool and humankind. He casts doubt on whether humankind qualifies as wise, suggesting instead that humankind as such has a strong proclivity for being the fool, who in the opening verse says in his heart, Ugh, not God. The implication is that the kind of seeking they tend to do is a matter of pursuing or reinforcing their own agendas, seeking to be authentic or true to themselves, as we might say, or possibly as we encourage. Such a tendency seems to be why Psalm 14 denies repeatedly that they embody what is good. The psalmist aligns wisdom with seeking God and foolishness with contenting oneself in not doing so. In the logic of this psalm, foolishness consists of seeking our own ends above all else. According to this psalmist, human brokenness leads us, in fact, to excel at foolishness. I'm a bit unsure about the remark in verse 4 concerning quote, those who consume my people, a remark that's oddly paired with what seems to be a very mundane act of consuming bread. Sometimes it's cleaned up a bit too much in translations. For example, the NIV reads, they devour my people as though devouring bread, or as though eating bread. But the phrase as though is extra. It's an interpretive effort to connect these statements as a comparison for our sake as readers. The strange sequence of devouring others and devouring bread is somehow meant to elaborate on a widespread lack of goodness, and it obviously contrasts the idea, contextually, of calling upon God. But with that in mind, perhaps the mundane, even casual description of people consuming others and then moving on to consume some bread illustrates the numbing and ultimately deluding effects of being the fool. By this point, though, I hope it's clear that we can't simply pat ourselves on the back for being exempt from the foolishness that Psalm 14 targets. This is a psalm that raises problems regarding the human condition, and it seems to diagnose the human condition as beset with internal issues that the psalmist portrays in terms of foolishness, corruption, and a lack of goodness. It hardly seems possible for human beings to remedy problems that are internal to their nature. Where then can we find hope in this picture that we have in Psalm 14? Without softening the picture at all, our text invites us indeed to hope for something different. In verses 5 to 7, the psalmist says that God is present with the righteous generation and that the poor have their refuge in God who offers deliverance. There doesn't seem to be a big distinction here between 
the righteous generation and the poor. They may well be the very same group. The big distinction is between the fool on the one hand and the righteous or the poor on the other. In marked contrast to the fool, the poor or righteous appear to recognize a fundamental dependence on God and seek nearness to God. The poor's dependence is conveyed by the spatial or architectural metaphor of God as their refuge, an image that evokes God's sanctuary presence. God's sanctuary presence as our proper refuge or home is a major, major theme throughout the book of Psalms. This idea of the refuge is connected to ideas of the temple. In Psalm 14, verse 7, Zion is, of course, a geographical instance of sanctuary presence. But sanctuary presence is not somehow reducible to Zion. It's instructive that the metaphor of refuge here is not applied to Zion per se, but to God himself. In the Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, God's presence with or nearness to people manifests divine grace, as well as the transformative power of grace. After all, the New Testament's idea of grace depends entirely on the Old Testament. A theme in the Psalms is that God's presence is the precondition for life, and that life is something graciously given and restored through the gift of God's presence. That's the idea in Psalm 42. Many of us know Psalm 42 about as the deer longs for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. That's the idea in this psalm where God's presence is likened to water that restores the psalmist's withering soul. God's presence fundamentally alters the soul as it's drawn near to God. That's the broader theological background for calling God the poor's refuge in Psalm 14. Although the poor here may indeed be economically impoverished, this same term for poor is used in other psalms for a kind of recognized spiritual or theological impoverishment. It's closely related to what Jesus means in Matthew 5 when he references the poor in spirit. This sense of impoverishment or being poor is certainly relevant in Psalm 14 where the speaker emphasizes a widespread and ostensibly universal lack of goodness and lack of wisdom. People don't deserve God's presence, but God offers it nonetheless. It's an act of grace. At this point, though, Psalm 14.6 seems to provoke us. Rather than allowing us as readers to distance ourselves from the fool, really at all, verse 6 contains the only direct address in the entire text. It speaks suddenly to you, saying, you have shamed the counsel of the poor, since Yahweh is his refuge. That's an accusation reminiscent of the fool, addressed here as you, over against the poor. Whoever the original concrete referent of this you may have been, its presence in the psalm now spurs us to reflect on our own relationship to the fool and our fundamental dependence on the goodness of God, whose presence offers transformative deliverance, even where there is, quote, no one who does good, not even one. That's why Psalm 14 is a text we need to hear, 
a text that maybe unexpectedly is a lens into God's goodness and grace. Where people bring neither goodness nor grace, God embodies both by offering to come near. And that can change everything. For this reason, maybe we shouldn't be surprised to learn that in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, which was today's New Testament reading, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14. What he quotes here is an expanded version that we find in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is uh, a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that was completed around 132 BCE. He's quoting from this, which is an expanded version of the text, but it still is our psalm. Paul quotes Psalm 14 in the context of discussing an anthropological dilemma. Namely, that non-Jews and Jews alike are subject to what Paul describes as a universal power of sin. That's Romans 3 verse 9. This is hardly a shocking usage of the psalm since it repeatedly says that people lack goodness. Paul also says this power of sin is a power from which God offers transformative deliverance. And in this way, Paul's thinking resembles what the psalmist said long before him. They stress not only people's lack of goodness, but also the power of God's presence and goodness to transform. Transformation here means that what enables our most basic operation, what enables our desiring and our acting, is itself altered by a goodness that isn't our own. Already having spoken in Romans 1-2 to about non-Jews, whose idolatry, Paul says, reveals a lack of goodness, and a lack of wisdom, Paul asks in Romans 3 verse 9 whether the power of sin applies somehow differently to Jews, among whom he counts himself by speaking in terms of we. He says, what then, are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. End quote. He immediately points to Psalm 14, saying, quote, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Using our psalm, Paul would remind us that this critical assessment of human beings lies near the core of the gospel. It's the lens through which grace is understandable. And far from fueling a self-righteous or arrogant outlook, this critical assessment that humankind depends on a goodness that isn't their own motivates patience and mercy toward one another as well as toward strangers. To say that people are internally flawed beyond self-repair with a proclivity for being Psalm 14's fool is to include all of us in a kind of solidarity. To be sure, it's an unflattering solidarity, but it's solidarity nonetheless. There's no basis for acting as though anybody is exempt. This solidarity that Psalm 14 and Paul discuss is part of why God transforms humankind in and through Christ and why the work of Christ is a gift we can never repay. Divine patience and mercy were and still are the response to human brokenness, making divine patience and mercy the standard for who we ought to be in response to Christ's gift. While we can't repay it, through the power of God's goodness, what we can do is give our whole lives to it, since God's goodness is infinitely more powerful than what Paul calls the power of sin.
through grace, through offering himself as our refuge in the language of Psalm 14, God can transform unrighteous human beings into righteous ones and supply goodness where there is none. Romans 3 and Psalm 14 both help us to see this truth about God. By graciously offering himself as our refuge, God enacts a process of change in our very makeup, reorienting our desires and allowing us with our whole self to seek God who would mold us into his likeness based on his goodness. With God as our refuge, our true end as God's creation can match the ending of Psalm 14, where despite the foolishness they've done, the expectation is that God, quote, restores his people's fortune, end quote, and brings them true gladness through unbreakable nearness to God. Psalm 14 is a lens through which we can discern and understand our dependence on the goodness and the grace of God, since God is the one who comes near to those lacking in both goodness and grace. This psalm helps us get at the heart of what grace is. Grace is the power of God's presence and God's goodness working in us to transform us. It's the power of God's giving us his goodness where goodness would otherwise be lacking. Despite our tendency to be the fool, God in Christ graces us with what Paul fittingly calls in 1 Corinthians the power of God and the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me? God of wisdom, we thank you for your presence and goodness that sustain our very being. We praise you for your grace that empowers us to know and seek you. And we acknowledge that as creatures lacking in both goodness and grace, we're gratefully and forever indebted to your loving kindness. Guide us to give our whole selves to you, our heart, our mind, and our soul, so that in our whole being we might be drawn always nearer to you and changed into your likeness. We pray in the name of Christ, who is your Son, and your image. Amen.